Well, our sermon passage this morning is from the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Give ear to the word of God. Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, uh, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, I know I said the same thing last week, and I, I say it from time to time, but uh, I always talk about certain things, certain doctrines and teachings of the Bible that are neglected and, uh, and to a great degree. And I, I think that the, the biblical teaching, what the Bible teaches about the person and work of the Holy Spirit is sadly very often neglected and misunderstood by many sincere Bible-believing Christians. That being the case, I thought, just like last week with the Ascension, I thought it would be good for us to spend one Sunday at least taking a look at at least one passage about what the Bible tells us about the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives. And we're going to focus mainly on verse 18, but not just that one verse of our text, where Paul says to us not to be drunk with wine, but to be what? To be filled with the Spirit. Just as somebody might be, in a sense, filled, you know, drink a lot, filled with wine, he says, don't do that. And he doesn't say take a sip of the Holy Spirit per se. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Don't fill yourself with wine that leads to debauchery and dissolution. Uh, And I think being filled with the Spirit is the great need for us as Christians today. It's always been our need, and I think it's our need now. For apart from the Holy Spirit's work within us, we can do nothing. We can't pray the way we should. We can't worship the way that we ought to do. We can't live, certainly, in a way that pleases God without the work of the Holy Spirit within us. In his book, uh, Living for God, which is a short introduction to the Christian faith, Mark Jones writes this. He says, Jesus tells his disciples that apart from him, we can do nothing, which is akin to saying that without the Spirit, we can do nothing. And he's quoting John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, really what he's saying in a a very real sense is, apart from the work of his spirit within us, we can do nothing. For that is how he is present and at work within us, is by his spirit. In in many of Paul's epistles and other writings in the New Testament, uh, Paul goes to great lengths to impress upon us the vitally important role of the Holy Spirit's work in our salvation. It might be something you've read a hundred times and it just never jumped off the page quite the way it should have at you. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in and among us repeatedly. He speaks of the Spirit's work in every chapter of this short six-chapter book. You just might not have noticed it maybe when you were reading. It doesn't always jump off the page. And In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, He tells us that we who have believed in Christ for salvation have been, quote, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So right away, right off the bat, he reminds us that if you're a Christian, you have been sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. 
And that that Holy Spirit who is indwelling you as a believer is the guarantee or the down payment of your inheritance that you will get uh, in Christ on that last day to the praise of the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks at length of God in Christ reconciling to himself both Jews and Gentiles alike and breaking down the wall of, of, of hostility between us in his flesh so that we are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, even being built together into a holy temple in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 21. Kind of what Rob was talking about with the communion of the saints, that he has now broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. We are all who are in Christ are one body. And how does that happen? Look at verse 22. Paul there says, In him that's in Christ, in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by whom? By the Holy Spirit. Who is the one that builds us and unites us together as a holy temple to to the Lord in Christ? It's the Holy Spirit. He is the one who unites us to Christ. He is the one who unites us to each other and builds us up the way God wants us to be built up into his his household. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, Paul as he often does in his writings, tells the believers in Ephesus how he prayed for them. And he doesn't just do what we often do. Hey, I'm praying for you, which is fine. He tells them, here's what I'm praying for you. He says that he prayed for them, quote, Ephesians 3, 16 to 19, quote, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height, or rather the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's how we should pray for each other. That that is a great model for us to pray for each other to grow in God's grace. Now, how is it, According to Paul's writings there, how is it that we as believers are to be strengthened in our inner being? How is it that we are to be having Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith? And that we might grow in our knowledge of Christ's infinite love toward us so that we are filled with the fullness of God. How does that come to pass? What does he say? Verse 16, through his spirit. So literally, Paul's telling them, when he prayed for them, he prayed that God might strengthen them through his Holy Spirit. That was Paul's prayer. Even Paul's benediction in the middle of the book at the end of chapter 3, in verses 20 to 21, he highlights the work of the Spirit of Christ. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. When he talks about the power at work within us, not what, but who is he talking about? What power is that? The Holy Spirit himself. See, it's all through the book. But wait, there's more, right? Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul begins, you might know if you know Ephesians very well, Paul spends six chapters long, If you want a a simple outline of the book, he spends the first three chapters saying, here's what God has done to save you in Jesus Christ. Here's what God has done by his grace to save you from your sin. 
And in the last three chapters, it's kind of the therefore, the application section. Because of what God has done for you in Christ to save you from your sins, here is how you ought to live to thank him. That's, that's Ephesians. That's also every other book in the Bible. It's, it's, it's the book of Romans as well. Well, Ephesians 4, when he begins to start telling them and telling us about how we should live to show our gratitude to Christ, uh, he, what he does is he, he says in verse 1, he says that we are to do what? We are to maintain, in other words, the first thing that came to his mind when it came to the Christian walk. We are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He brings up the Holy Spirit Again, we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the unity we have been given by His Spirit in the bond of peace. In the rest of the chapter, he goes on to talk about the spiritual gifts God has given to the church, especially the offices of of, uh, pastor and elder and and evangelist and all these things. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul goes on to say that we are not to grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He keeps bringing up the Holy Spirit throughout the book. And he says, live in such a way as to not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed. We have our our own text in chapter 5, which we'll get into in a moment. But in the very last chapter, chapter 6 of the letter, Paul speaks of the spiritual warfare that we are all involved in as believers. And he tells us about the weaponry you and I are to take up. And what does he say? You are to take up what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse verse 17. What does he call the Word of God? The sword of the Holy Spirit. That's what this Word of God is. And also, not just that, but he says that we are to pray, quote, at all times, verse 18, in the Spirit with, with all prayer and supplication. It's every chapter in the book. Paul brings up the Holy, not just Christ himself, but the Holy Spirit of Christ. He brings him up again and again and again. He brings him up when he wants to tell us about what God has done to save us in the first three chapters. And he brings him up repeatedly again when he tells us how we should live in such a way that is fitting for the gospel that we have believed for salvation. That is how often Paul brings it up. Now, the first thing he tells us in our text in chapter 5 It's the beginning of a theme he began earlier in chapter 4 is he wants us to watch how we walk. He wants us to pay close attention to how we live. In verse 15 he says, look carefully then. Keep a close eye on it. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. I have to say, that's not something that we're very accustomed to doing. You know, we live in in an internet age, in a, a, a social media age, in a selfie age when everybody's taking pictures of themselves for whatever reason and posting them online. But we look at ourselves, we post pictures, but we don't examine ourselves very often as we ought to do. It's not an accident that we often quote the scripture talking about the Lord's Supper saying, let a man what? Examine himself and then partake of the bread and the cup. We need to watch our walk carefully, he says. In in this passage, Paul tells us the Christian life is, is really to involve a careful self-examination. We need to keep an eye on ourselves. We need to watch, so to speak, watch how we walk. And all this serves to remind us, or it should serve to remind us, that it, it matters how you live as a Christian. Now, there are many that would tell you differently than that. But they're just not right. It matters how you live. You aren't saved by how you live. You don't earn your salvation, but it matters how we live as Christians, as showing our gratitude for Christ 
for our salvation. We should make it our aim, each one of us in this room, to grow in godliness and sanctification. And part of that involves carefully looking after how we walk. Paul says in verse 15, we're supposed to walk in wisdom as well, not as unwise, but as wise. And part of that, verse 16, is making the best use of the time, he says, because the days are what? Evil. Evil. We're redeeming the time. It's much like it reminds me of Psalm 90, verse 12, where it says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The, the watchful, wise walk that we as Christians are to are to do involves living in the light of eternity. We don't live just for this age, for this life. We don't just live for the things of this life, but for the life to come. That kind of a walk with living in light of eternity is a walk that involves being mindful that we only get one life in this life to live to the glory of God as salt and light in this world. We have all eternity to praise God in heaven and to enjoy the glories of that, but he gives us one opportunity in this life to live for him and to glorify him in this world. That's why Paul says in verse 17, Therefore, do not be foolish, or really mindless, do not be foolish, but understand what the, what the will of the Lord is. You can see the progress of his thought. If you don't want to waste your life, one of the things that you have to do is understand what God's will for your life is is and to seek to do it. Don't be foolish. Don't waste your life. Find God's will for your life in Scripture and walk in its ways. The only way to really redeem the time is to know and understand and do the will of the Lord in all areas of your life. That may look different for you than for me. It may look different from one person to the next as God calls us all to different things, but we should be seeking to know and understand God's will that we might do it. Is that your goal? Are you seeking in all things to conform your life in all things, in every area of your life, to the will of God? That should be the goal of every Christian. And what's the will of God? Romans 12, 2 says it's that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God's not asking you to do something bad. It might be hard. But God's will is good. Not just good to him, good for you and good for me. It's acceptable. And it's perfect. God God has a good will for your life, not something bad. He wants us to live in a way that's pleasing to him, and pleasing it should be to us as well. That's not really how we naturally, most of us think, though, is it? We kind of want what we want. We kind of think we know what's right, but we don't often know naturally what is right. That way of thinking is certainly at odds with the way that the unbelieving world thinks, isn't it? The world just wants to go with the flow and do whatever they want, whatever seems right to a man. But, you know, according to the world, not even thinking about morality, though, you, you may be a very productive person. You may be a highly successful person. You may be a very busy person. You may be somebody that, as far as the world can tell, doesn't waste your time. And yet you may be wasting your life completely by not serving the Lord and not following his will. If your life is not lived primarily for doing the will of God, you are wasting your life. That's what the Bible tells us here in Ephesians 5. And How do you begin to do the will of God? Maybe you've never thought of that before. How do I, What does it mean to do the will of God if I, I've never done it before? How do I start? 
Well, John 6, 29, Jesus says, This is the work of God. Here's where it starts. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Doing the will of God starts with believing in Jesus Christ for salvation and trusting in him alone as he has offered to you in the gospel. And so I ask this morning, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the one that God has sent? Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation from sin? And because of that, are you living to do his will in all things? That's that's the way of wisdom. That's the beginning of doing God's will is to believe in Christ whom he has sent. Well, then in verse 18 of our passage this morning, Paul brings up one of the most common ways to fail to redeem the time. One of the most common ways to waste your life and to fail to redeem the time. In verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Drunkenness is a way to waste time and fail to redeem the time. Notice Paul's contrasting redeeming the time with drunkenness. Drunkenness he calls what? Debauchery in the ESV. The NASB, I think, might put it a little bit better. Dissipation. What is dissipation? It's waste. He's saying drunkenness is to waste your life away. That's what he, that's what he contrasts redeeming the time with. It's, it's the same kind of thing with the prodigal son. You might remember that parable of the prodigal son. What did he do? He wasted his inheritance. That's what drunkenness is compared to. Nothing quite exemplifies a foolish and wasteful life such as drunkenness. Now note that wine or alcohol is not expressly forbidden in Scripture. We don't want to be wiser than God or more biblical than the Bible. We should be careful not to go beyond what's actually written in the Scriptures in God's holy word. Wine itself is not the problem. The abuse of wine is. The excessive use of wine and alcohol is. And the very fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what always gives me pause, we're going to have the Lord's Supper here this morning, and Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with wine. He did not have Welch's. His first miracle at the wedding of Cana, he did not turn wine into grape juice. He turned it into wine. Wine is not the problem. Jesus is not anti-wine. Jesus is not anti-alcohol. He's anti-drunkenness. There's a big difference. He didn't give us wine in the Lord's Supper uh, if, if, if it were something harmful for us to partake of. But the abuse of wine is something that should not be said of a Christian or alcohol itself. Now, before we let ourselves off the hook too quickly, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, Pastor, I haven't drank alcohol in years. I, I, in fact, I've never had it. I don't touch it. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You're never going to have a bad day because you didn't drink, right? Uh, nothing wrong with that. But before we let ourselves off the hook too quickly, I think we need to recognize there's more than one way to fail to redeem the time. There's more than one way to live a life in some sense of dissipation. It's not just wine or alcohol or even drugs that warp our walk and waste our time. Excessive entertainment or amusement, for one. I always remember when I was in Philadelphia, Dr. Boyce, uh, I forget what the passage was that he was going through, but he, the word amusement came up. And he said, you know what the word amusement means? And I was sitting there not knowing what it, what it meant. And he broke the word down according to its etymology, the parts of the word. The A in amusement is the negative. It's called a privative or a negative. It means to not. Like an atheist doesn't believe in God. Well, what does it mean to muse? To think. Amusement means to not think. 
to turn your brain off, to, to take, you know, to get your mind off. You know, we all like to get our mind off of things. Nothing wrong with that per se, but living your life that way is no way to live. That's not redeeming the time. It's often mindless. Much of our entertainment is often mindless at best. Just as drunkenness influences our thinking and behavior in a bad way, so many of the things that we spend a lot of our time on do as well. How many of us are adversely affected by what we see on social media, on Facebook, or Twitter, or Instagram, or YouTube, or the so-called news media. I have to say, in the last two months, I found myself wanting to turn all that off. I haven't turned it off as much as I should have. It affects my mood. Maybe it affects your mood, too. You see things bad happening somewhere else, and you feel like you're in the middle of it, even though you're not. These things... Don't do us any good very often. How often by these things are we tempted to discontentment with what God has put in our lives? To discouragement. I have been discouraged by most of what I've seen on the news and social media in recent weeks and days. Despair, even. How many people do you know have been brought to despair by what they've seen constantly on the news in recent weeks and months? Don't waste your life. Redeem the time. doesn't mean you can't watch the news, but don't, don't wrap yourself around the axle by watching it too often. Don't waste the time God has given you by watching the same five minutes of news for three hours at a time there or on social media. Well, what is, what is Paul's alternative to drunkenness and dissipation? You know, we would do it this way. We'd say there's an old Bob Newhart skit where somebody's telling him... Uh, all these bad things are doing. And his, his answer as a psychologist is, is often, stop it. Everything they say, I'm doing this, I'm having a hard time with this. I'm not quoting it except the stop it. Stop it. Well, Paul could have said, don't be drunk with wine. End, period, exclamation point. But he doesn't usually even do that, does he? He gives you the alternative, the thing that, that's, that's supposed to take its place and fill the gap. What is Paul's alternative to drunkenness and dissipation. He says, be filled with the Spirit. It's a present tense command. It's also passive. He doesn't just say be filled like a one-time thing. It's present tense. It's be being filled. Be in a constant state, in a sense, of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. That's the alternative that Paul commends to us. Not just sobriety, as important as that is, uh, as part of it, but be filled with the Spirit instead of being filled with wine. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, in a sense, is to be influenced more and more by the Holy Spirit. You know, just as when someone is drunk, what do we often say they are? We say that we describe them as being under the influence. Same kind of thing. To be filled with the Spirit of God is to be more and more influenced by the Holy Spirit, His work in our lives. That is the way we are to approach life and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, how? How do you do that? We all like how-to lists. We like simple uh, things that we're told to do. How are you and I as Christians to be filled with the Holy Spirit? That's a good question. That's probably the first question you thought of when you read the text. Be filled with the Spirit. Okay, Paul, how do I do that? Paul doesn't seem to give us the how-to, does he? John Stott helpfully points this out. He says, there is, uh, there is no technique to learn and no formula to recite. Paul doesn't say, here's the three-step way to be filled with the Spirit. 
he assumes in some sense that the command itself is self-explanatory. We'd probably prefer a technique or a list of steps. I know I would, so we can check the box. But Paul doesn't give us anything like that. Instead, what does Paul do in our text? He kind of paints a picture for us of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. He doesn't define it or give us steps. He describes it for us. Here's what a Spirit-filled life looks like. And what does a Spirit-filled life look like? He, He tells us in verses 19 through 21. Look there, he says, addressing or speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart uh, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So speaking to one another, singing to the Lord and making melody in your heart, giving thanks to God for everything, in the name of Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what a spiritual life looks like. The spiritual life is not one of rolling around the floor and making strange noises and things that some of the kind of hyper-Pentecostal folks that we know might, might tell you of. It's these simple things. And most of these things involve worship. Notice a few things about what Paul says in verses 19 to 21 The spirit-filled life involves other Christians. There's a lot of one-anothering going on in these verses. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We need one another to have the spirit-filled life and to express it properly. Lone ranger Christianity is not an option. In fact, according to Paul's words in our text, it would be pretty much impossible to be filled with the spirit apart from fellowship with other Christians. You may have the Holy Spirit on your own, all Christians do, but you're not going to be filled with the Holy Spirit with just you yourself on your own at home. It's pretty much impossible in some sense, according to our text, to be filled with the Spirit apart from fellowship with other believers. Second thing, notice that being filled with the Spirit involves worship. It involves corporate, public worship. We don't just speak to one another in general, but we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. He's talking about the church gathered, just like we're finally getting to do here this morning, today. So in a sense, redeeming the time, you could say redeeming the time starts with the fourth commandment. To remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. If we neglect the public worship of the church when we have the ability to do so, to meet, we are not redeeming the time. You could say the fourth commandment is is telling us to redeem the time. At least one day a week setting it aside to worship the Lord. I think it's helpful if you want to know how to kind of thing, which we always do. I think it's sometimes helpful to look at when there there are parallel passages to, to what you're looking at. It's helpful to examine those as well. And there is a parallel passage to ours in the book of Colossians. If you read through Ephesians and Colossians, you might notice Paul repeats some of the same phrases. It reads almost like the same book with slightly different wording by Paul. Look at Colossians 3, 15 through 17. He says, Colossians 3, 15 through 17, Paul says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. There's all the one another's again. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Not word for word, some slight differences, but uh, what's the focus there? Corporate worship. The church gathered. And how does he describe worship there? As letting the word of Christ dwell among you richly. The you there is plural. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, among you, plurally and richly. So do you want to be filled with the Spirit? And it starts with Spirit-filled worship. And Spirit-filled worship starts with a worship that is saturated by the Word of Christ. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, fill yourself with the Word of God and ask God to fill you with His Spirit. So spend time in the Word of God, both in private and in public. Spend time in worship, both in private and in public with God's church when we gather. Pray to be strengthened in grace as Paul prayed for the Ephesians that, that we'd be strengthened by His grace, by His work within us in the Holy Spirit who dwells within each believer in Christ and you will be more and more filled with the Spirit of Christ and to be filled with the Spirit of Christ is more and more to be under His influence in all things. That should be our goal, our prayer, and our way of life. May we be filled more and more with the Holy Spirit that you and I might grow in grace to the glory of God. Amen.